I'm here to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. <laughs> Acts chapter 7 and we'll just go to verse 51. I'd like to just say this in the subsequent 50 verses. Stephen will give a historical oral account of the history of Israel. And he'll measure them from Abraham to his present time. He doesn't spare the times when Israel sinned because the men he's talking to have given great credence to their fathers and their forefathers as if their history has been pure. It was not pure. Israel had fallen away from God many times. Sometimes they, they, they devolved into worshiping the God of Molech. I don't have time to tell you about the God of Molech. It was an atrocity that would have entailed infant executions, much like abortions today. And Stephen's going to give this account and he'll launch into David. Of course, David is one of their most solemn and, and um, honored kings. And then Temple to Solomon. He'll even say, David didn't build, the, but Solomon built the temple, which is another, um, I don't know, today they, they say it's throwing shade. It's another little call out. You know, David wasn't that good either. He didn't even build it. It's kind of messing with these religious people. And then he launches into the prophets. So many of them, all of them. How they were treated. Many of them killed by Israel. All of it was historically true. It was a commentary until he gets to this word. And then he... Then he points the finger at those men. Stephen points the finger at those men. And he says in verse 51, how about this for a Sunday morning sermon? Would you like to hear this? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Ghost. Your fathers did it too. Which of the prophets have, you, have not your fathers persecuted? Tell me which one. And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Indicted. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels. That's how you received it. But you didn't keep it. Verse 57. Now they're angry. They couldn't stand those three verses, that small description of themselves. But Stephen is putting everything on the line, everything on the line. He's smart enough to know because, see, he's not one of the apostles. He's one of the learned men 
that can execute the business of the church. He's one of the men of good report that's going to be over the finances of the church. He's not one of the apostles. He's just one of the men who's astute enough and good steward enough to execute all of the financial structure of the early church. He's one of only seven. And he's preaching a sermon, but he's putting his life on the line now. This is not an easy or a pleasant thing. In fact, he's taken the biggest risk and gamble that anyone could ever take. And when they heard it, they cried out with a loud voice. And they put their fingers in their ears. And they just ran to him, ran up, rushed him with one accord. And they picked him up and threw him out of the city. And then they picked up stones. Of course, their heavy garments were, were too draping for them to wield a stone. So they took them off. And they laid down their coats at a young man's feet. His name was Saul. He's going to be named Paul in a few years to come. And they stoned Stephen calling upon God. He's calling upon God. And he's saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried out with a loud voice while they're killing him. While they're stoning him. Lord don't lay this sin to their charge. And this is kind of a kosher way to say he died. It had been better for them to hang him, to behead him, or to thrust him through with the sword than to die by stoning. It would have been better. But he gave everything he could at the last moment and offered his body. And he did so as a witness even though he didn't know at the time if anyone was paying attention. And in fact, we know of all those people that did that, only one remembered. Only one. It was the young man that stood by. And today I preach the fire of the rice sheaves. And I pray the Lord's blessing upon us. And everybody said in Jesus' name, just lift up your hand right now and pray that the Lord would anoint you to receive the word of God with all readiness of mind. I receive the word of God. Help me to receive it. Thank you, and you may be seated. If possible, imagine this moment, but a handful of years ago, it's 2011, a mere nine years back. February the 11th, 70 miles off of the coast of Tohoku, Japan, and then go down 18 miles deep. There's a shift in the ocean floor and it causes an earthquake. It's not uncommon. Earthquakes off the coast of this island country are frequent. It is written that the Japanese archipelago 
is located in an area where several continental ocean plates meet. So as they shift, so does the earth and it causes a ripple effect beneath and above. The great shift moves the ground below the water and the greater the shift, the more dangerous the waves become. In 2011, we were all witnesses to a massive tsunami that consumed the borders of Japan. It took out hundreds and hundreds of buildings and houses, some 30,000 structures. It was the most dangerous that they had ever seen because it affected that boxy nuclear facility that they had built right along the coastline. Japan's structures, no matter how well designed or manufactured, manufactured just cannot defend against the ocean's floor, earth movement, and the quake. Those flexible, reinforced steel structures are they're just not capable to withstand the subsequent tidal waves caused by the earthquake or the force of nature. None of us have a defense against the law of inertia like that. Especially with 70 miles of wave traveling at several hundred miles per hour. In 2005, the Indian Ocean's earthquake, which caused a tsunami, killed over 150,000 people in a single day, destroying most of what we know as Indonesia's island of Sumatra. You might remember the pictures, perhaps. The devastation was tremendous. The earth's tectonic plates moved and they displaced land and water in layman's terms. The tsunami occurs when the earth shifts, thus the earthquake, and then the water suddenly fills the cavity left by that gaping hole. When it's then closed and settled, it reemerges when it's close to land, then the water recedes very rapidly. So it, it moves in and then it moves out. It, it, it kind of envelops and consumes that cavity and then it moves back. People in Sumatra were photographed running out to the ocean floor. They did not know what was going on. And they were picking up live fish left stranded hundreds and hundreds of feet out where water had once been just moments ago. But then the hole is filled and the water begins to resettle. It rushes back to its own uniformity. So even though the water recedes quickly, and even though the ocean floor looks bare for a moment, the water does and will come back. It rushes back with a force like anything, like on anything we've never, no one's ever seen that kind of devastation. Billions upon billions of gallons of water and all the active force behind it, it swallows up whatever is in its path. And Japan, with all of its 20th century innovation in the 1900s and then 21st century technological designs, can still not master the waves. No one can. History is filled with such events. Japan's history seems interwoven with these same things over and over. The stories, there's been so much shifting, so many waves levied against this island nation. I'm looking a little further back in that country's timeline to view the scene, which this year will be about 165 years ago. It's mostly lost to the ever fluctuating 
24-hour news cycle. The year is 1854 and the day is December 24th. Three successive earthquakes hit off the coast of Japan. They all range in various magnitudes. The Ansel earthquake hits in the morning and from the writings that we have, it seems that the people will, for the most part, weather that storm. There's a lot of devastation, but what they did not know is that another tsunami earthquake is going to happen and reports are going to come in. The second one is going to be a rapport and echo of the first. The second is called the Nankai earthquake. And it will happen not in the morning, but in the evening. With the first one finished, and typically the only one as they would have thought, no one was prepared to be hit again and sigh had come with force, but most had escaped harm. And Sai happened about 10 a.m. in the morning in the daylight, but the second one, Nankai, happened when the sun was going down. There was a shaking on the land, but the greatest indication was that the well water suddenly went dry. All the wells went dry. It is said that fear gripped the people, small villages, panicked, not knowing what it could mean. They just could not imagine another earthquake on the heels of the first one, they were just picking up their lives. And for certain, they were not prepared for the, for the tsunami that was to follow. As that ocean floor shifted and the water rearranged its fluid constitution, think of it, they could barely make out the receding shoreline, the sun having gone down. Most were still reeling from the morning quake. Most were preoccupied, trying to put things back together, digging themselves out of the morning crisis. But now... At the worst possible time, a reverberation of the former took form. It swept the waters backward and then exposed the ocean's soft underbelly. And then like a heartless beast, it came back to swallow up everything in its path. Some write that the sound of the tsunami is deafening. Some report that decibels reach so high that you're almost paralyzed in place. You would rather hold your ears than run for your life. The fear of the sound itself is a terror all its own. Nankai is coming and fewer still will survive that one. History reports that about 3,000 people died during those dark hours. Water rushed back onto the land. Houses fell. Roof tiles were blown into the air. People repeatedly heard sounds like the, and I quote, the roar of cannons as the water overflowed the riverbeds and all the low-lying areas, tearing down buildings. Animals of all kinds drowned instantly. They could not stay afloat. People were looking for high ground, but the lights had already gone out. The early morning quake had destroyed whatever hope of light and electricity they might have had. It's dark. The sound of raging water is rushing forward. The tsunami is traveling up rivers and washing away houses and agricultural fields and with agility and might just wiping it all away. And up on a hill stands a man. We know him as Hamaguchi Gario. He's a man of means. History tells about Hamaguchi Gario. He has a large house on a hill. And the surrounding hills are where he plants his crops. Rice sheaves cover the sides of those hills. They were his main source of income. He made his living on those hills. He brewed soy sauce and sold it. But he also excelled in other things, other crops. All of it happening on the side of those hills. His rice 
storage barns were there and the things that defined him and his family were there. When people thought of Gario, they thought of a conservative man who was cautious with his things. A good steward, a man with money and resources and most of all vision. Lineage and heritage what his, was his constant concern. Who came before him and who would follow after him? Gariel felt the first earthquake. He joined in the effort to put things back together, even on his hill. But when the second one struck, and he heard the sounds of distress in the night, the sounds of water rushing and the buildings exploding and breaking apart, cannons being fired, he thought. From his position, he knew that many would not survive. He would, or so he assumed. Those in the valley were sure to perish. They were going to die. And though he could not save them all, Gario decided to do what he could do to reach as many of his own countrymen as he could. Japan's history books, even children's books, record the night when Hamaguchi Gario took a flame, lit his rice sheaves on fire. He burned his priceless fields, his rice fields, the sheaves standing tall, still waving in the wind, all of them. He caught them ablaze, and those rice sheaves became a midnight beacon for the blind, the confused, the villagers racing to save their lives and their families and their children. And not many were saved. In fact, very few were saved. He burned his fields and very few were saved. In fact, the ninth villager to reach the burning rice sheaves and weave his way up the sides of that hill, he said, and I quote, Oh, I was saved, Gariel, because of your fire. In a matter of moments, we are told that the tsunami extinguished most of the fires of the rice sheaves. But the momentary light gave direction to those who were saved that night that Nankai hit Japan. Gariel could have saved himself. He could have thought of himself. Only a few dozen people lived. 3,000 plus died. And the few that were saved cost him his fields and everything that he had ever worked for. His life's work was destroyed in a moment and mostly by his own hand. He could have considered the cost. He could have said, what difference will it make? There's so much devastation already. What about tomorrow when all this is over? What about me and my family and the people that I support? He's living in Japan. It's the home of earthquakes and storms and tsunamis. He's living in an area where it's common to them. What about his family and his sons, his daughters, and those who depend on him? Gorio could have taken another course and saved his rice sheaves. The hills could have survived to make it another day. But he decided to save others, even if it was but a few. And I want to preach to you today about the love of God. I, I want to preach to you about his love. But I'm compelled to ask you about your love. I'd like to take this pulpit and talk about the grace of God that flows freely and the mercy of him from whom all blessings flow. But I am provoked by the Holy Spirit to ask you about the level of your grace and your mercy toward one another and especially toward the lost. Here's the question. Matthew 19 and 16. One came to him. They said, good master, what shall I do so that I can inherit eternal life? 
and I get it. It's inter- it's internal. We want to be saved. We are concerned about making it. Everybody is concerned about heaven. If you're not concerned, you ought to get concerned because there's a real heaven and a real hell. And one of these days, you're going to find your place in one of those areas, either heaven or hell. Hear me. This is not a feel-good sermon. There's no gray areas. You're either going to be saved or you're going to be lost. There's a real heaven and there's a real hell. You have the opportunity to make it to heaven today and you have the opportunity to make it to hell today. I get it. It's internal. What do I need to do, pastor, to be saved? It's the question. In fact, it's the second most most important question we have to answer. The first one is, who do you say that Jesus is? And the second one is this, Acts 2.37, what must I do to be saved? And verse 38 gives us the keys to the kingdom. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, because that's the promise of the Father. I get it. We want to know how to be saved. I want to know how to be saved. It's internal. We're concerned about it. So master, what do I need to do to be saved? And then comes the list that Jesus said. Well, thou shalt do no murder. Don't murder anybody. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. He's reciting the Ten Commandments. Don't bear false witness. Let me skip you. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbors yourself. The synoptic gospels all talk about this ruler. Matthew calls him a young man. That had great possessions. Mark writes that the man was sad at the same and went away grieved for he had great possessions. Luke says that he was very sorrowful for he was rich because Jesus did not offer his followers what our modern religious leaders offer us today. He said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. That's unsettling. I never hear of a conference where the preachers all talk about self-denial. But I hear about a lot of conferences where you come to gain, to get, and to prosper and have all kinds of prophecies over you that you're going to have more than you left with. The prayer of Jabez is a powerful prayer. You ought to pray it. But there's another prayer. It's called the prayer of Gethsemane. The prayer of Jabez says, expand me. The prayer of Gethsemane says, constrain me. Jesus didn't offer his followers all of that stuff that's happening today. He promoted self-denial, which is the opposite of popularity. We live in a selfie culture. But Jesus taught about a selfless culture. I don't even have to try to define him. Paul wrote it with the utmost clarity. He didn't have a reputation. Jesus would never have taken a selfie. So when you want to ask what Jesus would drive, a Prius. And what he would eat, tofu. And what kind of paper he would write on? Recycled? Give me a break. I'm going to tell you what Jesus would have done if he had a cell phone. But he made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a servant. And he was made the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the, of the cruelest death ever, the cross. But we love our rice sheaves. Our fields are what define us. And if you think it's all about money, then you probably have a problem with money. It's more than that. It's who you think you are that you protect so fervently. But Jesus gave himself over to be scorned, ridiculed, and mocked. The Pharisees seem so distant to church people today. Nobody thinks they're a Pharisee. We all think we're better than those self-righteous men, pompous and arrogant. We measure our good deeds, our church attendance, 
even our just intentions as the divide between them and us. But I tell you that the Pharisees were simply trying to protect their own religious practices. They stumbled at the sight of Jesus who had ministered to the unwanted of Israel. They did not understand a man who would welcome people who are mentally and spiritually sick. And it came to pass. As Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why is your master eating with these publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, they that are whole have no need of physician, but those people that are sick, those are the people that need me. The Pharisees were so busy trying to save their image that they missed the incarnate God. They were so busy maintaining what they found in themselves that they failed to lay hold of the find of a lifetime. And I think the Christians love their rice fields. We like our stuff. We like who we are. So we protect our image. Some of it looks spiritual. We're protecting what we think is spiritual. Some of it is tradition. Some of it looks like talent. And we love that. Some even try to protect the fact That they won't conform to any standard. (laughs) And while Jesus is reaching for the most unlikely and the most disregarded in society, they seem to always find a seat at his table. The Pharisees are, they're distraught, they're They're looking at these people that are messed up. They're washed up. They're dried up. Some are beat up. Some are tainted by false doctrine. Some are tainted by false, by past wounds. Some are living in the scars of life, the mind, the mental anguish, physical abuse, poor environments. Parents, hear me today. Parents who play church. Mounds of rejection. So much more. They all seem to find their way to the table of the master and he loves them. I'd like to talk to you about his love for us, but I'm compelled to talk about yours. And if you think this is new, then wonder no longer. Go look at the place called Gadara, where there was a deranged man living in their city. He was possessed. Night and day he screamed out. I don't know the movies. I just, I just know the titles. I'm too spooked out to watch anything. Plus, you open a door to all kinds of spirits. It's like the combination of that day, poltergeist and the exorcist all in one. Real demons, ladies and gentlemen, haunting the body of a normal man. The men of the city tried to tie him up with fetters and chains. But the Bible says that he broke the fetters and chains in pieces. He lived among the tombs and cut himself with stones. The image of it all, caked blood and the stench of an unbathed man, sometimes naked, screaming and echoing with strange and haunting sounds, day and night, nobody could sleep. There was no rest in Gadara. And then Jesus takes one step off of Peter's boat onto that shoreline, and the maniac, the demon-possessed man, runs and falls down to the Lord's feet, and the demonic spirits spill out of him, and they cry out, Jesus, thou son of David, thou son of the most high God, we adjure you, don't torment us. And the Lord looked down at that man who's now on the, on the ground prostrate before him and says, what is thy name? And the voice came out of the man and said, my name is Legion, for we are many. The legion all knew they were no match for the I am, the incarnate God, the Emmanuel God with us. So they just ran to him. They pleaded with the Lord. Don't.
don't, don't just cast us out, but let us go somewhere where we can occupy something. And there beside them were a herd of swine pigs, about 2,000 altogether. And the legion thought that they could exist in the herd of pigs. But when they enter into the swine, the Bible says that the pigs all ran down the side of a cliff and drowned themselves in the water. And forthwith, Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. I guess some folks will tolerate what a pig will not. (laughs) Here's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Just skip ahead one more verse. Concerns the man who had been possessed. And they come to Jesus and see him. All the town that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. Here he was, sitting clothed and in his right mind. Hey, you would think that the people of Gadara would be dancing and rejoicing. The midnight cries had just come to a conclusion. The day and night rantings. All the scourge of those evil spirits that had Brought against an offense against their families and their homes was over. No more holding the ears and shielding the eyes of their children from his nakedness and the gore that he betrayed. No more cutting them with stones. No more smells and the blood echoing out. No, they were not happy. And here is the most perplexing part of that verse. Mark 6, 5, 15. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting in clothed in his right mind. Here are the last four words. And they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Why would they come to see a healed man, once erratic, now in peace, once naked, now clothed, once deranged, now in his right mind, civility, calmness, sanity, hear me, it was not the same fear as being frightened. It was the fear of what the Lord's healing was going to cost them. If that was the cost to heal one man and him to be delivered, they are afraid of what they were going to have to give up. Why were they afraid? Because they saw it. They saw the transformation. And the next verse says that they began to ask Jesus to depart out of their coast. We know what it's going to cost to heal one man. That's a lot. I don't know if we can give up anymore. The modern day Pharisee is not the one who espouses decency and lifestyle. The modern day Pharisee is the one who loves the doctrine of Jesus Christ. The modern day Pharisee is the one who denies the truth. It doesn't deny the truth that... To the lost, but they denied the truth in themselves. They don't want to look at the lost, the blind, the torn in the night. They don't want to consider the suffering from crisis, the quaking of life that entangled the people, and they're wondering, what is it going to cost me? And so they'll they'll park themselves in a church where no preacher is going to, where a preacher is not going to get up and tell them about what it's going to cost you. But I'll tell you what it's going to cost to get one soul out of the pit of this world. It's going to cost you everything. Hear me, you're living in a dark world. It's a nighttime. Do you not know it's nighttime? It's almost midnight. The clock is about to strike. There's earthquakes everywhere. There's sin everywhere. There's degradation everywhere. There's division everywhere. And the only way that the church is going to have some kind of influence in this world, we're going to have to burn everything. We're going to have to let everything on, lit everything on fire. We're going to have to light all of our lives and our homes and give up everything. <laughs> Don't you know that this world is suffering? 
And I know people in the church suffer. I know people grieving. But how would you like to suffer and have no knowledge of God? How would you like to have grief and loss and have no church? How would you like to have a need to, to get something out of your life but you have no knowledge of an altar? What about being sick? And no one to pray for you. Or being lonely and have no family. Hear me. We're surrounded by warm embrace of hundreds of mothers. If you've never been loved on by Mother, Mother Gordon, you haven't lived. Haven't we talked about that before? Amen, Brother Gordon. There's fathers here. There's families here. This house is filled with opportunities to be a part of a powerful church of like-minded people. Whether you take that opportunity or not is up to you, but it's here. We walk in and we are led so brilliantly, brilliantly by prayerful and anointed singers and musicians. Thank God for them. We're led by men and women all around us who care about our needs and pray for us. Even our youth right now and our children, they're hungry for God. Our children, as young and four, as young as four, five, six, seven years old, are crying out to God and they're speaking in tongues for the first time. God is filling our children with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Trust me, this is like an oasis in the desert. But what if you had no part of that or didn't know about it? No knowledge of the word, no promises of hope. See, it's not about God's love for us. That was never in question. He loved you before you even knew his name. He loved you before you erred. He loved you while you were living in error. And he loves you after you got out and repented of the error. Let me say it again. He loved you and knew your name before you had the presence of mind to call on his. He cared about you when there was no reason to care about you. Jesus did not abandon you when you left him. He, his love reaches farther than the mind of the greatest men and women of the world. His devotion goes deeper than any ocean that ever existed. Any relationship that you've ever known. He died for the sins of the world. And that was the plan before the foundations of the world ever came to their proper form. He was and will always be a loving God. For God is love. He is the self-declared definition of the very thing that we confess toward him. The question is not about him. It's with us. We love our stuff more than we love him. How about your rice sheaves? What are they worth to you? And I know that if I leave the rice sheaves as a metaphor, some trope, we can all just go home justified, never applying it to our lives. But your rice sheaves might be your time. You love your time. Your energy. Image. Pride or money? How about reputation or your clothes? When was the last time you worshiped so fervently in church that you were sweating and you knew I got to get home and take a shower? I want to I ask you, how long are you going to sit there until your body wears out, your muscles deteriorate, your bones start creaking, arthritis sits in, and you never have a chance to d- dance, shout, jump up and down? How long is it going to be? Because you love the position where you're at. I'm, I'm here to disturb you. 
How about the fact that you might be a multi-generation Pentecostal? What does that mean? You are not inherently spiritual just because your mama, your daddy, your grandpa, your great-grandpa, your... If one of your relatives were at the prayer meeting at John Mark's mother's house... (laughs) When they were praying for Stephen to get out of jail... That doesn't mean nothing to you. That's not going to get you one inch towards heaven. You might still be carnal. All those people who say, well, I have 50 generations of Pentecostals. What does that mean? Did that ever get you one step closer to the prayer room? I'm going to tell you where it begins. It begins right now, right here. Because they're not, you're not going to heaven on your mama and your daddy's coattails. You're going to heaven because you love God and you've given everything. And he's saying to you, just don't do the minimum. But sell it all and pick up your cross and follow me. Hey, I feel provoked by the Holy Ghost. It's higher than me. I got to preach the scripture. Purr the sheaves because the only thing that's going to matter in this life is what you do for Jesus. Hear me. If you're going to get a job in a different city, you better not even scope out the job. You better scope out a good apostolic church that believes in the Holy Ghost, miracle signs and wonders and holiness and dedication because you can go to a place and make more money, but it won't matter if you're not in the presence of the Lord in a church. I'm going to tell you, when you devote and dedicate your life to God and you bring your family up in the fear of God and you're in the altar and you're crying, it'll actually cost you less. Because addictions cost a lot of money. And bailing your kids out of jail cost a lot of money. And the world cost a lot of money. And rehabilitation cost a lot of money. And DUIs cost a lot of money. Hey. I got a word for you. You better jump in with all you can. You better get as deep as you can. You better get as close as you can. Don't you dare let all this time go by and hear the word week after week after week. But never jump in. You got to burn the right sheaves. Here, Pastor, now lay up your treasure. Where the rust and the moth can't corrupt it. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Give the best years of your life to the kingdom. And give your time to saving people. Reach the unreached and love the sinner. Make a place at your table in your home for the unlikelies and the unloved. You don't have to fear demonic spirits. I hope you don't. They're spooky to me. I don't want to mess with it. I just cast it out in Jesus' name. But I really hope you don't fear what it might cost you to be a real follower of Jesus Christ. Because more people have fear of being a follower of Jesus Christ than they ever had a fear of the demonic world. We're afraid what it's going to cost us to be an apostolic, born again, 100%, sold out, everything, 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 saturated all the time. I'll tell you what I would do if I were you, mother. I'd get rid of everything that got in the way between me and Jesus and my home and the church. I'd banish every concession and every thought 
that drifted through my brain that said, well, I think this might be okay. God, 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 God will make a way. He he won't mind this much. I get rid of all those, all those things that get in between you and your commitment to God. Then I dig down deep and say, I wonder if I really love the Lord. Because if I love the Lord, then I have to remember the only prayer request that Jesus ever gave. Not the only prayer, the only prayer request. He only gave one prayer request. Come on, have you ever heard prayer request? You know, prayer request. You know, we read the prayer requests before they came in. We read them to make sure, you know, we're saying them right, the names right. When I, when I went on as a youth pastor with Brother Stark many, many years ago, just married Tammy, the guys in the church, the young men, the young married men of the church played games on me. They wrote prayer requests. I didn't know anybody in the church. I just read the names. I was reading the names, interspersed through the names. They had written false or fake names. And I'm up there, you know, and let's pray for this sister and pray for that brother, Brother Williams. Brother Gladden, and here's another prayer request. Let's pray for Jack Hammer. <laughs> I read another real name, and then, then let's pray for Brother Alan Wrench. What's wrong with those guys? Pastor was not amused. My pastor was not amused. We used to have open prayer requests. Those were, just, those were just about as bad as the open testimony services. People would describe bodily functions. We would be grossed out by the time we started praying. You know what I'm talking about. Hmm. Jesus had one prayer request. Here's my prayer request. Pray the Father for laborers to be in the field. He only turned in one prayer request. Pray that there would be people in the church that would be in the field because they're ripe, ready for harvest. Pray for people that they would have a burden and a call having to reach out beyond themselves and bring in everyone, the highways and the byways, people from the hedges, on the street corners, the poor, the, un, the unwanted, the unlikelies, the people that are, that are spiritually weak and, and, and they're anemic. Get everybody you can and bring them in the house. That's his one prayer request. Mordecai. has a niece he's raised like a daughter she's beautiful she is married she's now the queen she has now taken the role of queen vashti and now now it's queen esther but a man wants to destroy the people of israel that's held captives i'll give you the cliff note the plan is about to be executed and the people are about to die and the only one who really knows it is Mordecai and while Esther who represents the Pharisee is sitting in the comfort of the palace 
Mordecai is on the streets crying, ripping his clothes, dousing his head with ashes. He's a spectacle. And he's standing before the gates of the palace, crying and interceding and praying. And Esther sends him new clothes and says, why don't you just go home and bathe and clean up a little bit? She doesn't know what's going on. But Mordecai says, listen, I'll burn my image and what everyone thinks about me. Because if I don't stand in the gap, someone's going to die. The Bible says in Genesis 18 that the men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you just sweep away the righteous with the wicked? If there's 50 people, will you just sweep it away? Would you just spare the city for just 50 or 20 or 10? Because somebody had to stand in the gap. There are at least two people, a family that's going to die. And God held back judgment for one family. Here's Moses. He says in Exodus 32, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. He said, oh Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hand? If you're going to wipe them out, wipe me out too. How about that? How about somebody in the church say, listen, if they're all going to go down, I'm going to go down with them. No, we're into self-preservation. See, Stephen did not have to speak the way he did. In fact, for many of us today, his language was illicit. He was inciting the wrath of those around him. Stephen could have just walked away, but there was a witness that needed to take place. He sacrificed himself, and in the process, a young man stood watching. Stephen gave himself up his life for the truth. And in the course of delivery, there stood that man that held the coats of the one who murdered Stephen, the young man. Stephen gave his life up for the young man who had become the world's greatest teacher, the greatest soul winner, the greatest disciple maker the greatest writer and preacher. In fact, most of what we know about church and marriage will come from the man who saw the sacrifice of Stephen. What we know about communion and revivals and holiness will come from that young man holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. That young man, having written 13 books in the New Testament, there was a reason for the self-sacrifice. It extended his witness Because standing there watching and hearing was Paul the Apostle in the making. You didn't know it when you saw him. But he was Paul the Apostle in the making. And the Pharisee would look around and say, I don't know if they'll ever do anything. What you don't know is the man who you think won't amount to anything might become the very man that spurs on the greatest revival. Look, I'm not talking about starting riots and being antagonists, but we are far from anything like that. We're gripped with this self-preservation. And while the world constantly pushes the boundaries of basic decency, the church is resistant to stand up for the cause so as not to be noticed. And while we preserve our rice sheaves and our image and our place in our community, thousands are being swallowed up by the tsunami of this life. So I offer this to you today. Come, burn your hills burn your rice sheaves what are you saving yourself for what are you saving all that for what are you preserving your time for 
your pastor today. I want the Lord to dig down into my heart. I want the Lord to search the inner being of my life. I want a church set on fire. See, a church set on fire shines a light in a dark world. But a complacent church who loves the function of the church, who loves the items of the church, can never win the lost that are not in the church. We don't have screens here so that we can sing the songs, although they're new songs and we have to know the words. We have them for people who come and don't know the words and don't know what's happening. We don't have a video announcement just for our sake, but for everyone who comes, they get to see what's going on in the church. We don't have greeters just to entertain ourselves. We have greeters and people that love folks and hostess people. We have pastors luncheon. We clean the church not just because we want to do it, but because we want to have a good representation for every lost soul that walks in the church. Tell me that we're not just having church for ourselves. Somebody tell me. Please tell me that we're not here just to be entertained. Somebody tell me that the church is here for the lost people of Terre Haute. Please pardon me, but I got to say it this way. Please tell me that I won't spend the best years of my life entertaining you with profound thoughts and revelations in the scripture. Tell me that you're here to be a witness. Tell me that you came to worship. Tell me that you came to give. Tell me that you came to serve. Tell me that you'll burn everything. Brother Bonilla and his crew had a big thing yesterday at 4 o'clock. Keep standing. They had a big thing yesterday at 4 o'clock for Cinco de Mayo. I asked Sister Bonilla, I said, tell me about Cinco de Mayo. She said, well, I, she said, you know, we, we, we were born in, in, in Mexico City. We didn't really know about Cinco de Mayo. She said, it's really just for the Americans. It makes them feel good about us Spanish people. It's kind of an American type Call out, shout out to all the Mexicans. She said, we don't know, but we're going to take advantage of it. And say so that all the stuff, and one of the, one of the sweet sisters there that's at the, at the church there, Sister Roberta, you don't even know her. She don't attend this, this church. She attends Nueva Vida. She's a Caucasian girl, speaks fluent Spanish worker. She married a man from Ecuador and they have a wonderful relationship but she knows the Lord and she loves the Lord but she was trying to find a good church for her husband. He was not connecting and so they drive an hour to come to Nueva Vida and she organized the whole thing. She had the cops out there. The police were stopping traffic. She had all the stuff. We didn't even know that was possible. And vendors came from all over. She just said just come for free. They came from all over but it rained in the morning. And it was kind of cold because, you know, I don't know, the global warming has not taken effect here in our area. <laughs> it was cold in the morning. It rained all day. And they were going to start at 4 o'clock. It's not, it's not probably a good time to start. And they had all this work and all the work. And I don't know how many people showed up. But when we came, there was not a whole lot of people there. There was a lot of work for not a whole lot of people. But Sister Benia said to me, Pastor, we've connected with two families. Two. 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 Just two. 
if it was just two people if it was just one person if we just if we can get a hold of one person and pull them out of the mouth of hell and keep them from eternal damnation i think it was worth it I'll tell you when church, here pastor, I'll tell you when church is not worth it. Church is not worth it when there's no people in the house that, that doesn't know about Jesus. If the only people who come are members, then we're a club. You're thinking right now. You're thinking right now. Hear me. That's a rice sheave. Your pride, that's a rice sheave. You got to burn that. You probably ought to have been shouting already. Maybe a couple of weeks ago you should have been shouting, but you've not been shouting because you've held on to a grudge, and your grudge is your rice sheave. But you should burn your grudge. You're hurt. your wounds. Because I'll tell you what, you'll die with that grudge. You'll die with that stuff. You'll die with all that things you've got. You've been building up all this time. Hear me. There are people that need you. They need to see you love God and worship God and give your whole heart to God. They need to see you clap and speak in tongues and be kind and love the Lord and witness to them. Come on, I'm preaching today. There's a field of rice. It's got to burn today. feel like just shouting out all the doubt. I feel like shouting out all the complacency. I feel like stomping on all the apathy. <laughs> right now, just say it, Lord. I receive it now. I receive it now. I receive it now, Lord. I'll minister to you. But who did you come to minister to? God loves you. If you're not convinced, stick around. But who do you love? He cares for you, but who do you care for? He's embracing you. Who are you embracing? I'm watching, Kayla, I'm, I'm watching Courtney. I'm so proud of you, Courtney. You're doing so good. Think of, think of where you were two years ago, Courtney. Think of where you were two years ago. What the Lord has done for your life. He brought you so far. Courtney. This is about you. This is about you. I love you, Courtney. I know you're learning. I know you're growing. But just thank God right now, Courtney. Just lift your hands and thank God. You just have no idea. If I can tell you, you have no idea where she's come from. Just a year ago. I gotta have some more Courtney's in this house. I gotta have some more Courtney's in this house. I love you, but I'm called. He gave me a prayer request. The Lord's prayer request was, please tell the people of new life 
There's a field ripe to harvest. Go get them. Whatever the rice sheave is right now, just lift your hand and say, Lord, if you will do it, Lord, I'm going to burn that. I'm going to give some things up, Lord, today. I haven't, I've been holding on to things, Lord. I've been pondering them. I've had control of all that. Whether it's pride, a grudge, bitterness, if it's assets, if it's time, if it's, if it's my own image, I'm here, to, I'm here to give something to you, Lord. You're not going to take it from me, but I'm here to freely offer it to you now. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, this is the moment just to lift your hands and say, Lord, forgive me of all my sin. Forgive me. I'm ready to give my heart to you. I'm ready to join the kingdom of the Most High God. I want to be in the kingdom. This altar is open. I don't know what, what will hinder you from coming here, except that there would be not enough room to get down and stand close. But whatever you've got to do, all you who are going to burn something in your life, all of you, they're going to give up something in your life. You ought to abandon the place where you are right now, and you need to make your way to this front and lift up your hand and surrender and say, Lord, I'm here because I'm going to set myself on fire. I, if it's just for one person, if I spend my entire life and I only get one person I'll count everything but not but for the cause of Jesus Christ here pastor today don't get so stuck in pride that you can't get out of that you should fall down on your face and say God thank you for loving me now help me love somebody like you love me there's a lot of room here in this altar come close come close people step all the way up step all the way up there's a lot more room there's a lot more room come on squeeze in there's a lot more room yeah 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 yes yes I pray for the convicting power of the Holy Ghost. I pray for the conviction of the Holy Ghost. struggling you're holding on you're struggling you'd like to but you're struggling with it now you're struggling come on groan through that pray through that pray it speak it out of your mouth I'm, I'm, I've got to, I've got to let go of something here today I've got too much image I'm trying to preserve myself come on now out of your mouth that's it that's it that's it that's it that's it that's it that's you yes 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 I got three minutes before I have to let you go take three minutes 180 seconds and tell the Lord tell the Lord about your life <laughs> that's right Your pastor, in reality, 
You're never going to give up anything. You've never really given up anything. Because the Lord is so faithful.